You've heard the women's midseason awards. Today, it's time for the men's midseason awards. That coming up much later on the show, but it's a really good episode. Not only will you have those Big East Men's Hoops midseason awards, obviously the big headline, at least on the men's side, Georgetown finally won a Big East Conference game for the first time since in the regular season, March 2nd, 2021. And since March 13th, 2021, their last overall Big East win in the Big East title game at the Garden that year against Creighton. So that streak came to an end. And joining me to talk about that win and what lies ahead for the Hoyas in the second half of conference play, their legendary radio voice, Rich Schwatkin. It's a great, great segment. It's coming up a little later on. But... Got some housekeeping to take care of. So, let's start on the women's side. So, the makeup game between DePaul and UConn at Gamble. Again, this is supposed to take place January 8th. But it couldn't because UConn didn't meet the requirement of seven scholarship players to play the game. So, they played this game Monday... And by the way, in this in this event, I mean, the tables were turned. DePaul was depleted. I mean, if you watch the game, they had barely anybody on their bench. And it didn't help that Jory Allen went down after playing just 15 minutes, only three points. More on their depth situation coming up a little later on. But UConn, after a bit of a slow start, it was all Huskies in almost every way. 20 20 turnovers, they could clean that up for sure. But they hold the Blue Demons to 26% shooting, 21% from three. It was 59-32 on the glass. And after a bit of a slow first quarter and first half overall, I mean, they were still up 45-28 at half, which is a lot. The second half, it was 49-23. UConn steamrolls the Blue Demons 94-51. Four starters and double figures. The only one that didn't was Nika Mule. She didn't even score a point, but had eight boards and ten assists. I mean, six turnovers ain't great out of the 20 that UConn committed, but Obviously, standout performance from Aliyah Edwards, 23 points, 10 boards, 10 of 13 shooting, and 3 of 3 for the free throw line. Lou Lopez and a child with 20 points on 7 of 15 shooting and 4 of 8 from behind the arc. 19 for Dorka Juhas and 9 rebounds, 7 of 12 shooting. Aubrey Griffin, a double-double, late, bleh, 18 points, 11 rebounds, 7 of 14 from the floor. And then off the bench, Ayanna Patterson, 6 points and 6 rebounds in 13 minutes. And then four each from Amari DeBerry and Enish Betancourt. And by the way, UConn only 415 from three, but 54% overall. So they were 32, the 33 of 53, excuse me, inside the arc. I mean, that they manhandled them down low in every way, and they dominated in almost every facet of the game, especially in the second half. 
Again, it was only a 17-point game at halftime. It was a 26-point margin in the second half. I guess that, you know, DePaul ran out of gas. And then some. Like, ran out of gas. Then you got to pull over on the side of the road with no gas. And then your battery dies. That's the best analogy I could possibly have with what happened to DePaul in that game. And really, DePaul, the only major contributor in this game was Anissa Morrow. 20 points, 12 rebounds, but because of the issues with the depth and all that, she had to take 26 shots, 8 makes, and 1 of 8 from behind the arc. DePaul made 7 threes, but they took 33 attempts, and they, they were 20 of 76 for the whole game. I will say, though, I liked what I saw out of freshman Maeve McGarland, who played 36 minutes off the bench and knocked down three three-pointers and had four assists to finish with nine points. And Darion Rogers and Anaya Peoples, each with seven, but just rough nights from the field. Three of 14 for each of them. Rogers one of seven from behind the arc. Peoples, one for four. As I mentioned, three points from Jory Allen before she went down. And then Kendall Holmes, three points, three assists in 35 minutes. And then uh, Zaria Hurston, two points off the bench in nine minutes. So the Huskies win that makeup game with ease. Tuesday, Creighton, they've had a bit of a... I mean, they started off rough in conference play, which I think the peak of it was when... Providence came in to Omaha and pulled off a shocking upset. Since then, the Blue Jays have been really solid. Winners of three of their last four. Granted, they're coming off a loss to Villanova at home, which they got they were dominated, point blank. But going into Friartown. They got they had revenge on the mind. And they got it. But it was they needed a big second half to do it. I mean, it was only 23-20 at the break. But Creighton, thanks to a big-time performance from Emma Ronzik, wins 64-46. Ronzik with 20 points, 7 rebounds, 9 of 16 from the floor, and 2 of 4 from behind the arc. 13 for Morgan Molly on 5 of 12 shooting, 3 for 7 from deep. Lauren Jensen, 12 points. And a team high seven assists, four of eleven shooting, but oh, a four from behind the arc. Rachel Saunders knocked down a couple threes and had six rebounds. Five points from Molly Mogensen, but off the bench, Carly Bachelor proving to be, you know, in the upper echelon. Maybe if you need Drake's the best bench player in the conference, Carly Bachelor's got to be right behind her. Eight points, ten rebounds in twenty-four minutes. Off the bench, a 42-30 edge on the glass for the Blue Jays. Eight three-pointers made on 28 attempts. Providence, four for 15, but inside the arc Creighton was much better. They took 35 attempts and made 17 of them. That's just under 50%, whereas Providence, only 15 field goals made the whole game. And they were 12 of 15 from the free throw line. Uh, Creighton only got seven free throws, made six. 
And only one player double figures for Providence. That was the player who burned Creighton the first time around. Grace Afosa with 12 points in 30 minutes. Audrey Koch with 8 points off the bench. 2 of 3 from behind the arc. And then Janae Crooms with 7 points, but a rough 3 of 12 shooting. Kylie Shepard, 6 points in 31 minutes. 5 each from Olivia Olson and Emily Archibald. And then just a three from Bryn Farrell. So Creighton really starting to turn it around after a bit of a rough start to Big E's play. And it's tough to shake off that ugly loss to Villanova. But they did so passing the test of bouncing back from that kind of loss with flying colors. So, Monday, Tuesday, you know, you only have those standalone games. But you had three games on Wednesday. Starting with a near upset at Karnaseka. I mean, give credit to Butler. When St. John's went on their runs, went on their run in the second quarter, they could have just folded. But they didn't. They got it down to two at halftime. And they actually led by as many as eight points in the third. But St. John's, ever the resilient team, weren't going to go down without a fight. And they were able to make enough plays down the stretch, which included a dagger three by my current transfer of the year, Jayla Everett. And the Johnnies escaped by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin. 67-65. Give a lot of credit to Austin Parkinson's team. They didn't give up, and they challenged St. John's in a place where they haven't lost all year at Carneseca. As we all know, their only home loss was to UConn at UBS Arena, and now they barely survive at Carneseca, 67-65. 16 off the bench for a unique Drake to lead the way in 31 minutes off the bench. 7 to 10 from the floor, 1 of 4 from deep. Kadeja Bailey with 11 points, 5 of 9 from the floor. 10 points, 6 boards for Raven Peoples. Jayla Everett had just 9 points. 3 of 7 from the floor, but a perfect 3 of 3 from deep, including that big dagger in the 4th. Danielle Patterson with 7 points in 19 minutes off the bench. Danielle Cosgrove, a player that has been relatively quiet this year. Doesn't really see the court a lot. But she knocked down two huge threes in 11 minutes off the bench. And then Mimi Reed, 6 points and 3 assists. The Johnnies shot fifty, nearly 53% from the floor. 7 of 18 from deep, and they were able to withstand the fact that Butler shot an even 50% from deep, 48% from the field, but both teams, it was, I mean, St. John's only committed 9 fouls. Butler 14, and a total of 11 free throws were taken. 3 for Butler, 8 for St. John's. Leading scorers for the Bulldogs were a, a pair of transfers that joined Coach Parkinson from IUPUI 
Anna Mortog and Rachel McLemore, each with 15 points. McLemore with five assists. Mortog, six of nine from the floor and three for four from behind the arc. McLemore, six of 13 from the floor and two of four from deep. 12 points, four boards, five assists for Sidney Janes. Six each off the bench for Jordan Muehlmans and Shea Frederick on a couple uh, on a pair of three-pointers. Jessica Carruthers with four points in 24 minutes. And then two each for Caroline Strand and Kelsey Taylor. So how about the Johnnies? Eight and three in conference, which is their best start in Big E's play in seven or eight years. It's It's been quite a while, but again, give credit to Coach Tartamella. They almost let that game slip away, especially when Butler went on that big run in the third to take their biggest lead. But the Johnnies might not be pretty, but they just find ways to win. And you got to give credit to everyone involved, from the players to the coaching staff. And the fans, too. I mean, you want to defend home court, especially considering how well they've done it already this year at Carneseca. So that home win streak, I think it's, what, 13 in a row they won at Carneseca now? And still got a lot of home games left to be played. And just to look ahead for how many home games they have left in the schedule, I mean, they got Seton Hall on Tuesday. And they still have home games with DePaul, Villanova, and Georgetown to go. So, again, my current coach of the year, Joe Tartamella, just getting his team to continue finding ways to win. Again, it's not pretty, but hey, a win is still a win no matter how you chalk it up. Speaking of surprising results, well, it was almost a surprising result for St. John's to nearly lose to Butler. But Seton Hall, their downward spiral continues. I guess the January swoon is now hitting the women's team after Kevin Willard left for College Park. I mean, I'm just making a joke here, but... Again, this is a recurring theme, it seems like, with Tony Bazella's teams. They dig too deep of a hole for themselves, and when they try to rally, the hole is just too deep to climb out of. Like, they can climb out of it quite a bit, but could the depth of the hole just is too much. And it happened again with Georgetown. In comparison to the Marquette game, they just got dominated every way possible. They got blown out. Seton Hall was down 15 at the end of one. They were able to cut it down to six at halftime, but then Georgetown had a big third quarter to get it back up to 16. And again, too deep of a hole to climb out of. And Georgetown, they've been a revelation. Again, I told y'all that they were better than being picked tied for ninth with Butler. They were better than that. And guess what? It proves I'm right again. And they get a big win over Seton Hall. 74-66. Kelsey Ransom continues her tear. 22 points, 14 boards, 4 assists, 7 of 14 from the floor. 
and knocked down her only three-point attempt of the game. Kennedy Fauntleroy with a really solid all-around game. 14 points, 5 boards, and 3 assists. 4 of 12 from the floor, 3 of 6 from deep. Grace Ann Bennett with 10 points and 5 of 7 shooting. 7 off the bench from Ariel Jenkins. 6 each from Christina Moore, Jada Claude, and Brianna Scott. And then they also got a 3. Like When I was following along, like when Georgetown got, got this big lead in the first quarter, the exclamation point was a 3-pointer by Modesty McConnell. And if you're wondering, Seton Hall was horrible shooting the ball. Absolutely horrible. But they were able to stick around because they were a perfect 16 of 16 from the free throw line. They forced 22 Georgetown turnovers. And the Hoyas were also, they got to the 30, they got 30 free throws. But they only made 17 of them which is worse than their three-point percentage, which was 58.3%, 7-12. Meanwhile, Seton Hall was 29% from the floor, 23% from deep. And their star, Lauren Park Lane, sure, she had a team-high 20 points, but she was 6-29 of 29 from the field and 2-12 of 12 from behind the arc. Said it before, and I'll say it again, no matter what the team is, hero ball is not going to win you any ball games. Meanwhile, Maya Bembry with 14 points and 4 rebounds. Case Satterfield came up with 13 points off the bench, which were huge in 27 minutes. 3 of 5 from the floor, knocked down her only 3-point attempt of the game. 6 boards, 5 assists. Meanwhile, Victoria Keenan knocked down a 3 off the bench. 2 points each for Jayla Jordan and Amari Wright. Wright with 5 boards and 3 assists in 24 minutes. Sydney Cooks. Just two free throws and four rebounds in just eight minutes. I mean, something's got to be up for her to only be playing eight minutes and for her to be struggling like she has over the past couple games. And then Shaylin Pinkney was held scoreless. So the struggles continue for the Pirates. And if I'm not mistaken... They've lost, let's see, that's now a four-game losing streak. So, ugh, things aren't looking good in South Orange. And then finally on the women's side, well, actually, no, I, I was wrong. The last conference game of this midweek slate, Marquette just throttled Xavier. Musketeers down to 0-11 in the league, 64-40, and Mackenzie Hare continuing to shine. 18 points off the bench, 6 of 11 from the floor, 4 of 6 from deep in 22 minutes, 17 from Jordan King, 7 of 14 from the floor, 2 for 3 from behind the arc, 8 points for Rosen Kumu, 6 for Chloe Murata. I mean, a rough shooting day at 2 for 14, but 16 rebounds. Meanwhile, 4 each off the bench for Micaiah Williams and Claire Cafes, 2 each from Kennedy Miles and Nia Clark, and Emily LaChapelle knocked down a three. Marquette, 50% from behind the arc. We compare that to Xavier at 10%. And they only shot 34% from the floor. Marquette, not that much better at nearly just around 36%. No one in double figures for the Musketeers. 
The most anyone had was Fernanda Ovalle with 9 points and 7 rebounds, 4 of 10 from the floor, 7 from Michaela Scarlett, who contributed the only 3-point make for the Musketeers, 6 each for Nyla Blackford and Anaya Harris, 2 points for Courtney Pranger, and then off the bench, 4 for Taylor Smith, and then 2 each for Kasia Woods and Kaylee Addy. And then to the only non-conference game on the women's side, it's the We Back Pack game. Number five, UConn visiting Tennessee. And UConn came out smoking in the first quarter. How about 33 first quarter points? But I mean, we're talking about a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing when it got to the second quarter. The Huskies only scored seven points in the second quarter. Seven. And Tennessee ended the first half on an 8-0 run. Got the crowd back into it, but UConn, on the backs of Lou Lopez-Senechal and Aliyah Edwards, were able to run away with it in the second half, 84-67, and sent those uh, volunteer Lady Vol fans up, up the up the staircase early, as you know they were making their way towards the exit with about three minutes left in the game. Lopez Senechal with 26 points on 11 of 16 shooting, 4 of 6 from behind the arc. Aliyah Edwards, 25 points, 7 boards, 4 assists. 13 each from Dorka Juhas and Aubrey Griffin. And then Nika Mule, 7 points, 4 boards, 14 assists. And uh, 4 steals. By the way, the Huskies... They got a rebound in 41 to 30, which whatever, but they forced 21 turnovers for Tennessee, held them to 39% from the floor, just 5 of 14 from behind the arc, whereas UConn, 55% from the floor and 57% from deep. Hey, when you shoot like that, it's awfully hard to beat anyone, let alone UConn. Meanwhile, for the Vols, their leading scorer off the bench was Jordan Horston with 27 on 10 of 22 shooting and 2 of 3 from behind the arc. Their only starter in double figures was Rakia Jackson with 13 points and 7 rebounds. She did foul out. 11 points in 25 minutes off the bench for Jillian Hollingshed. And then 6 points. All from behind the arc for Tess Darby. Five points for Sarah Puckett. Three for Jordan Walker. Not the Jordan Walker who you played a year at Seton Hall and now is tearing it up at UAB. And then Caroline Striplin with just two points in five minutes. So yeah, sounded like there was a lot on the women's side. And there was. But let's segue over to the men's side, and we start with the game where I wouldn't say history was made, but a historic moment, if you will. I feel like that's not the right way to put it, but whatever. Here it goes anyway. Obviously, the big headline, as we all know, the streak is finally over Tuesday night. At Capital One Arena, Georgetown finally won one. 
ending their 29-game Big East losing streak. They were down 37-36 of the half, but for once, they finally are a, over, able to overcome a first-half deficit. And secondly, closed out a game successfully against a high-major opponent. Thanks to some big performances from Primo Spears, a cook, a cook, and some other important role players. Georgetown finally wins one, 81-76. Spears with 21 points, four boards, and six assists, and, and played all 40 minutes. A cook, a cook, Brandon Murray, each with a dozen. A cook was four of nine from the floor and two of five from deep. You had nine points from Kadus Wahab and ten rebounds. Eight points for Jordan Riley. Seven each off the bench from Bryson Mazone and Wayne Bristol Jr. And how about five points in 15 minutes for Bradley Ezawiro? You know, they were able to withstand DePaul shooting 49% from the floor and seven of 15 from deep, but 30 DePaul fouls. You had. Three guys foul out for DePaul, by the way. And you had two more commit four fouls and two more commit three. I mean, I can understand why some DePaul fans and already fans are watching the game or see that stat and like, huh, this doesn't seem right. I'm not even going to comment because I, I didn't, I was unable to watch the game, unfortunately, due to a hockey game a D3 women's hockey game I was announcing. It wasn't just any game. It was a top 15 showdown. It was number, the home team who I announced for was number 13. Visitors were number 7. And it was a local rivalry out of conference too. So, yeah. Sucks I didn't get to watch it. I would have loved to watch that historic moment. Although historic is clearly not the right adjective to describe it. But, if I was able to watch it, I'd probably provide more feasible commentary if you will anyways for the blue demons 24 for for Umoja gibson 8 of 11 from the floor 3 of 4 from behind the arc and i'm pretty sure he's leading the entire big east in three-point percentage more on him in a little bit javen johnson 13 points 6 of 11 from the floor 1 of 4 from behind the arc again he was one of three blue demons to foul out along with yorane and philmon gebrowit uh, Deshaun Nelson, 20 minutes off the bench, 9 points and 3 rebounds. 8 each for Erol Penn and Philmon Gebrowit. As I mentioned, Gebrowit fouled out. 3 of 7 from the floor, 1 of 3 from deep. Penn, 13 rebounds, 4 of 9 from the floor. And then off the bench, they got 5 each from Zion Cruz and Caleb Murphy. And then 4 points from Yor Inay. So... You know, good for the Hoyas that they were finally able to win one. You know, it. even though it's only one game out of 20 in the conference schedule, they still got 10 more. You know, it's like Kevin Malone um, said on, on The Office in one of his, you know, sit-downs. It's good to finally win one. And I'm sure that's just how Georgetown fans must be feeling I know they're going to want more. Be, and there's plenty of opportunities to 
for them to win more games in conference play heading into the second half of the schedule, which you'll hear me discuss that with Rich Botkin. In it's coming up soon. I'll tell you that much because I'm not gonna like buzz through the other three games, but you know, I want you guys to get there sooner. You know. So, anyways, let's transition into Wednesday. So, Gamble Pavilion. Top 20 showdown between 13th ranked Xavier and 19th ranked UConn. Like I said, seeing how they looked against Butler the game before this, I really thought like UConn must have found that formula, that style of play that got him to a 14-0 start and as high as number two in the country. But it came crashing down pretty quickly as Xavier Went into Gamble with a fearless attitude, led by as many as 17 in the first half. And UConn never led. And UConn, they, in the second half, they, they did not go away. And they cut it down to a one-point game with... Trying to find the point where... With right around 11 minutes to go. But Xavier, they weren't rattled by that. As a matter of fact, they answered that with a 10-0 run in the next almost two minutes. And again, UConn, they made it so close. They got it down to one again with about five minutes to go after a breakaway dunk from Andre Jackson. But again, UConn, they got so close but just didn't do enough to break through and take their first lead of the game and, and eventually win the game. Xavier wins and improves to 9-1 and one in conference and had UConn their first Big East loss and their first loss overall since rejoining the Big East and with fans in the stands. 82-79 with Sule Boom leading the way with 21 points, 6 of 12 from the floor, 5 for 7 from behind the arc. Meanwhile, Colby Jones with 20 of his own, 8 of 16 from the floor, 3 of 6 from deep, 12 points for Jack Nungy on 6 of 10 shooting, 7 rebounds, 11 off the bench for Jerome Hunter in 25 minutes, 9 points for Zach Fremantle, but he did foul out, 5 rebounds, and I mean, one of those fouls was the technical, and I will say that you know, Xavier should have been much better. Uh, the coaching staff should have been much better, at least letting Fremantle know, like, hey, that team is your fourth foul. Because he would have been a little more careful trying to dance around that fifth foul. By the way, or avoiding that fifth foul, Desmond Claude had six points, including a nice dunk down the lane. And he, 20 minutes, and had those six points. And then... Just a three, and that was very, very early in the game for Adam Kunkel. Xavier won this game with great three-point shooting and great strategy. I mean, they they essentially put the gave Andre Jackson the Ben Simmons treatment in the first half. Like, oh, you want to take some threes? Go right ahead. We're not going to contest you because we know you're not going to make it. And he went over three from downtown in the first half. Didn't take a single three the rest of the game. Can't imagine how much that would fuck me up mentally. Like. He's so bad at shooting the three that we're just going to let him shoot uncontested. 
So I would hope that's not going to get into his head like that. But, I mean, just, uh, I'm trying to find the, I mean, you're going to lose when you let a team like Xavier shoot 53% from the floor and 50% from behind the arc. And UConn was 10 of 28 from deep, 41% overall. Jordan Hawkins lead, led the way with a game-high 28 points, 8 of 16 from the floor, 5 for 10 from behind the arc. He did foul out. 23 for Tristan Newton. The, I feel like the majority of them came in the second half. 6 to 12 from the floor, 2 of 5 from behind the arc. Adama Sanogo, 11 points, 9 boards, 4 assists. 4 of 7 from the floor, knocked down his only 3-point attempt of the game. Andre Jackson, 6 points, 3 of 12 from the floor. Uh, 5 points for Alec Caravan. Off the bench, only six total bench points. Four from Nahim Aline, and then two points in seven minutes for Donovan Klingon. So how about this? Sean Miller has this team halfway through conference play at 9-1. and one. And by the way, they only won eight conference games all of last year. Miller time is alive and a well. Is alive and well. I can't even talk right. Miller time is alive and well in the Queen City right now. And they got a huge showdown on CBS on Saturday, which I'll preview that later on in the show. The other two games on Wednesday were lackluster. I mean, you had you had a thriller in stores. The other two games on Wednesday were just ugh, ugly. Butler started off well at Providence, and then the Friars woke up and beat the brakes off the Bulldogs once again. Once again, I should say. Providence ends up winning 79-58. to Second straight time they just beat the brakes off Butler this year. And a well-balanced effort. By the way, Jared Bynum returned in this game. Only played 11 minutes. 2 of 5 from the floor. But Bryce Hopkins led the way with 16 points and 7 rebounds. Ten po- um, how about 12 each off the bench for Clifton Moore and Corey Floyd Jr. Floyd, 4 of 5 from the floor and 2 of 2 from deep. Um, let's see. Devin Carter, 10 points, 10 boards, 4 assists, 3 of 8 from the floor, 1 of 2 from deep. Noah Locke, 8 points in 31 minutes. 6 points for Ed Croswell and 5 rebounds. Uh, five points for Jaden Pierre, and then, uh, like I mentioned, Bynum had four points, as did Allen Breed. Providence shot 55.6% from the field, only 29% from three. But, again, inside the arc, they were just dominant. 25 for 37 inside the arc. And they out-rebounded Butler 42-24, and that's with Manny Bates back. And Butler still got blown out despite making eight three-pointers on 19 attempts. And they were just 6 of 12 from the free throw line, though, which is just... I love free throws. Playing, I love taking free throws in practice and games because I knew I could be good at it because it's an art form. Routine, everything. So as for the Bulldogs, 
12 points to lead the way for Eric Hunter Jr., 5'11 from the floor, 2 of 5 from deep. Jaden Taylor, 10 points in 24 minutes off the bench. 8 points for Simas Lukosius. 7 for Chuck Harris. In his first game back, Manny Bates with 6 points and uh, 4 fouls. Just 19 minutes played, 2 of 4 from the field. Connor Turnbull knocked down a couple threes off the bench, and he only played 6 minutes. They got a 3 from Miles Tate in 3 minutes played, and then 2 each from Ali Ali, DJ Hughes, and Jalen Thomas. So how about Providence 8-2 and two in the league at the halfway point? And then in a game, you know, St. John's, they were horrible offensively against Villanova Friday. If you thought they were bad offensively that game, they were probably even worse defensively Wednesday in Omaha. As the Blue Jays, they, they have this reputation for just beating the shit out of St. John's in Omaha. And they did it again here. I mean, think about some of the blowout losses that have happened in Omaha in the last eight years or so. 2016 on Senior Day, Creighton won 100-59. to And then just the last three times around, they won by 18, 97-79 during the COVID year. Last year, it was a 20-plus point route. This time, 28-point blowout. And just like they did in 2016, they dropped 100-plus on, on St. John's, 104-76. And it was well-rounded effort, too. You had all five starters in double figures. And 12 players score total. Baylor Shireman, 17 points, 10 boards, 6 assists, 5 attempts from the floor, 3 of 7 from behind the arc. He's, he really is the Swiss Army knife for this team. 16 each for Ryan Kalkbrenner and Ryan Nemhard. 14 for Arthur Kaluma. A dozen for Trey Alexander, 5 of 10 from the floor, and 2 of 5 from deep. By the way, Nemhart was 2 of 3 from behind the arc, and Kalkbrenner was 7 of 8, and his only miss was his only 3-point attempt. Meanwhile, Frederick King with 7 points in 13 minutes off the bench. 5 for Francisco Farabeo. How about 9 in just 4 minutes from Xander Yates as he caught fire from deep? And then he got... A bucket each, well, two points each from Mason Miller, Sharif Mitchell, Sammy Osmani, and Ben Stolzberg. As a whole, the Blue Jays shot 56.7% from the floor, 11 three-pointers made on 30 attempts, just seven turnovers while forcing 12 for St. John's, and the Johnnies, 46% from three at six for 13, 46.3% overall. And St. John's was just awful from the free throw line. Eight of 14 compared to 17 and 21 for Creighton. AJ Store actually led all scorers with 23 points, nine of 16 from the floor, and three of five from behind the arc. Joel Soriano, 18 points, nine rebounds, seven of 11 from the floor. I'm pretty sure his double double streak came to an end in this game. Wait, did it? Now, now I'm questioning myself. It did. And then he, David Jones got the start in this game. 
13 points, 5 rebounds, 5 of 8 from the floor, knocked down his own 3-point attempt of the game, which probably proves the theory true that he is much better as a starter than he is off the bench. Meanwhile, Dylan Adewusu, by the way, no Posh Alexander. Adewusu, 10 points, 5-11 from the floor. Rafael Pinzon knocked down a 3, but that was in the first half and he didn't really, he did, he did nothing after that, really. Andre Curbelo, 4 points in 26 minutes off the bench, 3 boards, 3 assists. They also they got a three from Dresa Triore, and then two points in 16 minutes for Omar Stanley. So looking at the standings, Xavier at the top, Marquette and Providence tied for second, Creighton in the four spot, Seton Hall's now five, and how about if the season ended today, UConn would be playing Wednesday night against Georgetown. Villanova's seven, St. John's DePaul tied for eight, Butler's your 10 seed right now, and Georgetown, again, dead last, but at least they have... A want they have they don't have as and I can't even talk right. God damn it, whatever. Um, but they have a go, they no longer have a goose egg in the win column in conference play, which is automatically an improvement from last year. So that's how to look. That, that that's how, that's a good way to look at it. That's how I say. And now you got something to build off of at least. And how can I build off the past couple segments? Well, bringing in a broadcasting legend in the Big East would do it. The legendary radio voice of Georgetown basketball for the last five decades, Rich Schwatkin, joins me next to talk about Georgetown's big win and what lies ahead for them in the second half of conference play. Here it is, the one, the only, Rich Schwatkin. Welcome back to the Igloo. Obviously, the big headline over the past few days, Georgetown finally snapped their 29-game Big East losing streak with a win over DePaul. And who better to talk about this big win and, you know, finally getting um, the elephant off their back than the radio voice of the Hoyas, been there for five decades, the one, the only, the legend, Rich Schwakin. Rich, uh, thank you so much. I know we talked at the, at the Dome about a month ago, but I'm really glad I got you on the show here now. Well, Tim, it was a very, very emotional win for Georgetown last night. Not only a great win, but an emotional win. You can imagine, you know, the pressure Patrick Ewing has been under, you know, not winning a conference game over a two-year slate. And the kids came to play last night. I mean, it was a, a dogfight all the way down to the last couple of possessions. But Georgetown was able to finally get away with a win. Even though the crowd was less than 4,000, everybody was on a high and walked out of that building feeling very, very good. Not only for Patrick, but just getting this monkey off their back that's been stalking Georgetown for the last two years. So, I mean, let's talk about just the elevated play of everyone. And obviously that begins and ends with Primo Spears. I mean, he's just been a revelation winning the starting point guard job at the beginning of the year and arguably being one of the best transfers in the conference. What impressed you the most about Primo last night? Well, I think Primo has a will to win. You know, he's obviously a high volume scorer, but he's doing other things. I mean, he's one of the top in the, in the league in assists. Against Xavier, he had 11 assists last night, six or seven assists. I mean, so he's a guy that's helping spread the rock around. He, again, he scores the ball. He gets other people in the act. He plays very, very hard defense. You know, and he's been the mainstay to keep Georgetown in the games they've been in. Again, against Xavier, he had 37 points in the losing cause, had 21 against Villanova. So, so, so here's a guy who really, you know, when you take a look at his short career with the Georgetown Hoyas, he's been the lead guard that Patrick Ewing has been looking for. 
Again, last night they got supplemental scoring from a cook a cook as well as Brandon Murray. A cook a cook had four blocks. Caduce Wahab did a great job rebounding the basketball. You know, and they played good defense. They did not allow DePaul to get to the three-point line and just shoot lights out like they could have done with those great three-point shooters. And that, I mean, it obviously goes to show, you know, DePaul, compared to shooting at Wintrust, it's like night and day. But you talk about the compliments to Primo. Uh, Murray, who he's been in and out of the lineup, in the lineup, and with Jay Heath still being out with that injury, I mean, you, you needed Murr to be in the game, and not only did was he able to play, but his contributions um, in Heath's absence, and obviously, you know, with a, it's tough to back him up with, you know, Jordan Riley, but M Brandon Murray absolutely stepped up when he needed to in this game. Yes, he did. He also had five assists on the night, which was good. You know, he plays very tough on ball defense, but just his presence, you know, he goes north south, he gets hard to the rim. He can step back. He can shoot the threes. You know, they, they need his kind of supplemental scoring because without Heath, who averages 13.4 points a ball game, you know, they're, 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 that's a lot of numbers that they're behind. So a cook, a cook again, responded last night. I thought Jordan Riley played a very hard ball game at both ends of the floor. So, and Wayne Bristol coming off the bench along with Bryce and Mazzone. Mazzone hit that big three. So, uh, you know, they're, they're getting supplemental scoring from the pine as well. But as you well know, Tim, this is a very, very tough league. I mean, every night, in and out, you're playing against very, very good competition, veteran ball clubs, great coaches. So you have to bring a 40-minute A game every night or it's going to result in an L. And last night, they brought the A game pretty much for 40 minutes. And to me, I, I mean, I feel like you might second this, but the slow build in terms of, you know, almost coming away with a win at Villanova. I mean, they had their moments to pull away and win, but couldn't do it. And then at Xavier granted a double digit loss, but they still hung with them for a lot of the game offensively, both teams being very high powered Xavier, especially, but do you think that slow build of, you know, being able to hang with teams, the caliber of Villanova and then Xavier um, was kind of the slow build they needed to get over the hump and finally win one Tuesday. I think so. You know, Patrick talks to me every pregame. We talk about, you know, what they need to do, obviously, take care of the basketball, rebound the basketball, good shot selection, get defensively on the three-point line. I mean, all those things result in, if you do those things, you're going to result in a win. And last night, they did most of those things. They did a good job on the glass. They only had seven turnovers, which is really very, very good for Georgetown. They've been averaging 12 turnovers a ball game, and the opposition getting 25 off those turnovers like Xavier did. So they took care of the basketball. They rebound the basketball. They got out to the three-point line, and they had pretty good shot selection. I don't think there were many empty possessions where they took erratic shots, and that was good. I think the team came into their own last night, and really, I thought, played very, very hard on the defense of the end against Emoji Gibson as well as Javon Johnson. They, they didn't let them completely run wild. And those two guys, obviously, you know, those are the cogs in the DePaul engine. And I, so looking ahead, I mean, we're in the halfway point of conference play. You know, the Hoyas finally got that win. They're one and nine. And you look ahead on the schedule, I mean, you're, you're going back to the Mecca Sunday afternoon for a matchup with St. John's. And the Red Storm are going through some issues of their own, especially with that just abysmal offensive showing they had against Villanova last week. Um, I mean, what kind of opportunities do you see for Georgetown to, you know, try to build off of this? Because, you know, they have some opponents where they they have the potential to steal one. Well, against St. John's, I think you called it. St. John's has been very erratic. I mean, they blew out Connecticut and Hartford. I mean, they, they, they destroyed them. 
played very, very well. You know, again, one of the things that Georgetown's going to have to guard against is Soriano. I mean, he is a load in the middle. You know, he, he's a double-double man. I think he's been in double-doubles most of his season this year. I think there might have been two games where he didn't have a double-double. And then, of course, you have Posh Alexander and, and Dylan Adewusu, you know, the, who's been starting of late. They have A.J. Store who shoots the threes. So, you know, this is a ball club with a lot of weapons, and, and you can't take them lightly. They, Mike Anderson, as you well know, that 40 minutes of health from Nolan Richardson, they're going to get right in your face on the defensive end and try to force turnovers, get out in transition. So Georgetown's going to have to take care of the basketball. I think that's going to be a big factor. Can Georgetown handle St. John's pressure? And they control Soriano in the post. And that's, I'm with you on that 100%. I think in terms of the home games, they still, they still haven't seen Providence yet, for one. Uh, obviously, they meet St. John's for the first time uh, Sunday in the world's most famous arena. I mean, just looking at, obviously, they've done much better at home. And you look at who they have in the second half of conference play at home. Marquette, Providence, St. John's. As as mentioned, and then I, they also get they haven't seen Creighton yet either, who they closed the season against um, in Omaha um, the first week of March. Um, they don't ha I don't think they have as many home games as road games. Five, five more home games left. It is five and five. That's what I thought. But uh, obviously, obviously protecting home. I mean, you've seen the trends. Home court has provided be proven to be a huge advantage. I think home teams are winning like two thirds of the games already this season, which is absolutely nuts. Uh, so, I mean, do you see Georgetown capitalizing maybe stealing one against like a Marquette Providence as good as those teams have been? Well, you know, if, if they bring the energy, if they bring the 40 minutes, you know, again, you're talking about teams like Marquette teams like Creighton, they have St. John's at home and you got yeah, have UConn at home. I mean, the, you know, you're, you're talking about the creme to the creme of the big East. I mean, those guys, are serious and they play for keeps. I mean, when you, when you look at those teams, so maybe they might be able to steal one on the road against Butler. You, you never know. I mean, Georgetown has been playing very, very well on that hardwood at, at that, uh, you know, historic Henkels. So that's a game maybe they can win. You know, sometimes, you know, Tim, when you get on a roll like this and you win one ball game, good things happen. Maybe they can go to the garden and beat St. John's. I'm sure there's going to be a partisan hostile crowd there against Georgetown. And then of course you come back home with Mark with uh Creighton next Wednesday. So this will be an interesting stretch to see how the Hoyas respond after that victory. And obviously, you know, you went, you finally won one. You tried not to get too high because, you know, you still got 10 more games left. You're only at the halfway point. So, and last but not least, I obviously we talk about some of the app, well, one major absence, and that's Jay Heath. I mean, he, does, he, he only, I think he only, made his debut. I think he missed the first week of the season, then came yes. back against Northwestern. Yes. But I mean, his presence has been incredible. You know, he's, he's a solid three point shooter brings really good athleticism coming over from Arizona state. Um, how much do you think his return whenever that comes will positively affect the Hoyas and give them some more depth that they clearly need? Well, don't forget, you just hit, hit the nail on the head. He's a great three-point shooter. You know, when you average 13 points a ball game, you take that off your scoring, you're going to have to replace it with somebody. And then, then then you have to go deeper into your bench. But I think when Heath does come back, he does give them a, a different dimension in terms of one more three-point shooter. You know, again, when they try to get the ball in a Wahab, they double them. If you have a three-point shooter like Heath on the perimeter, they may not be able to just double down. They may have to give credit to to Heath on the perimeter and, and, and try to, you know, get in his grill. So that could help the Hoyas all the way around. And Heath could play tough on the ball defense as well. So he's going to be an asset whenever that is. I mean, 
you know, people talk about maybe him coming back the first week of February. I hope so, because uh, maybe they can make a little run here. But but he is a he is a great scorer. I mean, well over 1,000 points in his collegiate career. Did very well both at BC and Arizona State, and while he was here. So I mean, he's he's a tremendous loss. That hope they'll have him back by early February. Again, we're only at the halfway point of conference play, and it's good because when Georgetown's in the headlines, and for more positive reasons, it makes the game just a lot more enjoyable. And obviously, um, one of those people that has been just at the heart of Georgetown um, over the last five decades. Um, the legendary radio voice of the Hoya is uh, Rich Schwakin. Uh Rich, thank you so much for providing some perspective, talking about just the gravity of finally winning one for the first time in nearly two years. Um, again, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with your calls the rest of uh, Biggie's play. And I'll, I'll see you in the garden in, a, in about a month and a half. Always a pleasure, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Speaking of which, Biggie's men's Mid-season awards coming up right after the break. So without further ado, I know this has been quite a lengthy episode, but I definitely want to get these mid-season awards out of the way. So it's kind of hard for like where to begin, but I think the all Big East team was probably the toughest thing I had to do because there were a lot of great candidates and this is just for the all Big East first team. All right. My second team. I mean, there were a lot of guys I considered Cam Jones, Primo Spears, Caleb Daniels, Eric Dixon. Um, Zach Fremantle was also considered as was Ryan Kalkbrenner, Baylor Shireman, Jordan Hawkins, Umoja Gibson, Devin Carter. But these five players earn my first team honors. Starting with Sule Boom, who has been such a huge difference maker. For Xavier, leading them, leading the offense as a scorer, as a passer, and just being an incredibly well-rounded player. Joining him in the backcourt, Tyler Kolick from Marquette. Now, the reason why I went with Kolick over a Cam Jones is, is the fact that, you know, he's leading the conference in assists, and Marquette is going as far as he is in terms of just how well he is running their offense. So that's my justification behind picking Kolek over jo- over Jones and even a guy like hmm, like Caleb Daniels, for example. That's probably or even and to an extent Jordan Hawkins. So at the forwards, starting first with Bryce Hopkins from Providence. Hopkins is right up there for Big East Player of the Year. I mean, his first couple weeks, he looked like it just running away. But he's still a no-doubter for the first team. Joining him in the front court, Adama Sonogo. He's currently leading all scores in the conference with right around 17 a game. His rebounding numbers aren't as strong, but he's still... The clear-cut first-team guy that everyone was expecting him to be at 
in the preseason. And then rounding out the front court, Joel Soriano, who for a while, uh, he, he's got Biggie's player of the year numbers. I just don't think he has them because a lot of the time, team success has a lot to do with this. And St. John's is tied for eighth right now, despite Soriano averaging a double-double per game. So that's my first team. If you want to disagree with it, fine. I just I gave my justification. I feel fairly confident in it. And my player of the year, by the way, it's kind of like how I did with the women's awards. Whichever player, like on these all so-and-so teams, the first guy I list is my winner for player of the year, freshman of the year, transfer of the year. My, yes, so my player of the year is Sule Boom. And it's a tight race between him, Sonogo, Soriano, and even Hopkins. But Sule Boom barely gets the edge. I think a lot of it has to do with Xavier's success. So that is my all Big East first team. And I did have all of the other players that I mentioned in terms of, you know, guys that I was considering for the second team, honorable mention, etc. So. I guess that transitions into the all-freshman team. You have two different schools, each with two honorees, and the fifth one being from not those two schools. Let's put it that way. So, first guy up, and not necessarily the clear-cut freshman of the year, but he does have the edge right now, Cam Whitmore from Villanova. Preseason freshman of the year right now, he is on pace to be the freshman of the year by year's end. I mean, he he's had to take a bit of a backseat now to the more experienced Daniels and Dixon, but he's still doing incredibly well and has made a difference in improving Villanova's play since his debut in early December. Now, no surprise, this is one of two UConn guys on the all-freshman team, Alex Caravan. I mean, he's averaging 11 points in conference play. Quietly, he is. Like, I look like, wow, he's averaging 11 points? That's pretty good. And then you remember he's a freshman, and he's playing with guys like Sonogo, Hawkins, and Jackson. So, yeah, Caravan, he's a close second for freshman of the year right now. And then you add in A.J. Store from St. John's, who has really come alive in conference play after being pretty much a non-factor in the entire non-conference. But he definitely solidified his spot after his 23-point outing at Creighton on Wednesday. Our second UConn honoree, no surprise, Donovan Klingen. The big seven-footer, he's tied for the most total blocks in the conference, along with Seton Hall's KC Nadefo. I mean, he's just a monster on the blocks and in the post. And, I mean, it's scary to think, you know, he's only a freshman. And then rounding out the all-freshman team, Mark Armstrong from Villanova. I think he really solidified his spot with the game he had against Georgetown on MLK Day. You know, a lot. obviously Cam Whitmore gets a lot of the attention as the freshman on Villanova's team. But the fact that Mark Armstrong is joining him on this list when Jay Wright was very abrasive. As great of a coach as he was, one of his flaws was being very abrasive to playing freshmen. 
And here, here's Kyle Neptune doing this already. And it's, cra- it's crazy now that he's going to have two guys on my list right now on the all-freshman team. So, the all-transfer team. This was a tough list to come up with. <laughs> really tough. The transfer of the year right now, I mean, the fact that he's also player of the year, in my eyes, Sule Boom from Xavier. Joining him, is Bryce Hopkins from Providence. No surprise there. And then you add in Baylor Shireman, who's been that Swiss Army knife for Creighton. Pretty sure he's leading them in rebounds and assists, which he's averaging, I think he's averaging more assists than their point guard, Ryan Nemhart, and more rebounds than their center, Ryan Kalkbrenner. So Shireman's on the all-transfer team. As is DePaul's Umoja Gibson. Tops in the league in three-point percentage and leading the Blue Demons in scoring. And then last but not least, Primo Spears from Georgetown, who has played more minutes than anyone else in the conference. And without him, they're probably way, way, way worse than they are right now. Let's be real, all right? Primo earned the starting point guard job over 2021 Big East Tournament Most Outstanding Player Dante Harris. And he's proven this entire season why he earned it. Not that it was given to him, that he earned it. So that's the all-transfer team. So, other awards. Most improved? I'm giving it as much as great as Joel Soriano's been, I'm going to give it to Jordan Hawkins. Because this guy, I mean, he's really come alive. And, you know, like, if you watch how he shoots the ball and all that, it's ironic because this guy, the player comparison, is a UConn alum. He reminds me, and obviously UConn fans, and I think a lot of Big East fans at large, of Ray Allen. The quick release, the arc of his shot. And a style of play overall very much reminiscent of the former all-time leader in NBA history and three-pointers make. So that's my most improved The sixth man of the year, as it stands right now, Deshaun Nelson from DePaul. I know I'm going to get some shit from Xavier fans because Jerome Hunter is right up there. But the way Deshaun Nelson has played, and I'm just looking in conference play, all right? Deshaun Nelson, I think, is more deserving of sixth man of the year right now. And then coach of the year. This is so tough because it, I know that they've actually given out co-coaches of the year in the in the Big East before. I'm trying to remember what year that. I think it was 2016 with Kevin Willard and Jay Wright. I wish they just let Kevin Willard just have his moment and be the standalone coach of the year. I wish they did. Bias be damned, but whatever. Because I, really, I think Sean Miller and Shaka Smart are both incredibly deserving of coach of the year right now. But in terms of the expectations. I give a slight edge to Shaka Smart. 
This team was picked to finish ninth this year. They only have like what one senior. They might even. I'm gonna. I gotta double check. Do they? Um, because I'm a, something is telling me that they have zero seniors on the team. Zero. I'm gonna double check. So they only have two seniors. One's a walk-on, and the other is out for the season with an injury. So actively, they have zero seniors, and they're eight and two in the conference, and sixteen and five overall. That's a downright impressive coaching job. As great as Sean Miller has been this year. I'm just more impressed by the coaching job that Shaka Smart has done. It's 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 a narrow edge, but I'm just more impressed with the job Shaka's done compared to Sean Miller. And again, it's not a knock on Sean or anything or anything personal. That's just how I feel. I I've just been more impressed with the coaching job Shaka Smart's done compared to Sean Miller. But I give credit to Sean Miller. You know, he didn't coach at all last year, and here he is. Back at Xavier, first place in the Big East at 9-1 in the league after they're only winning eight conference games all of last year. That's the Miller time effect, you know. So without further ado, here are the weekend picks. On the Actually, no, I'm going to start on the men's side. Starting with those Xavier Musketeers. 12-15 CBS, the annual Creighton versus Cancer game. And this is the second year in a row Xavier has played in that game, and they spoiled it last year with a massive comeback win where they went on a a wild run in the second half to eventually pull a win. I'm pretty sure they won by double digits. Again, the Musketeers are 9-1 in the conference. They're only lost on the road at DePaul, and now they've proven that they can win in very, very hostile environments as they won at UConn Wednesday night, despite a furious comeback. But some tell me the way Creighton has looked at 6-3 and three in conference, they look like a completely different team. They look like the Creighton team that had started 6-0, looked like a Final Four team in Maui. And you know what? They've now lost two consecutive years in the Creighton versus Cancer game, their first losing streak in that series since the 2015 and 16 seasons where they lost to Providence and then Seton Hall. You know, with with the CBS crowd watching, you know what? I'm going to take Creighton getting the upset. Two o'clock, and I think it's going to be Creighton by three. I I, I want to get into the specifics. I I think Creighton wins by three. Speaking of a three-point win, by the way, a new attendance record will be set at Wintrust Arena Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock on FS1. And let's be real, I mean, I know I'm, I know a Marquette fan gave me shit because like I said, most likely they're going to outnumber the DePaul fans. Because I didn't want to make an assumption. Because what if DePaul fans are going to try to make more of an effort to show out? Maybe they're not as motivated now, given they that they just lost at Georgetown. 
But I feel like the default, the Paul fans that are there, you know, I think they're going to try to take it upon themselves. Like, they see these Marquette fans, like, who the fuck do they think they are taking over our house? But I think the effect of that's going to be too much for DePaul to handle. I think Marquette wins, but it's going to be close. I think that could be another three-point win. Three-point game, I should say. Four o'clock FS1, right after that. Scene Hall at Butler. You know, they're coming off a bye, and they got humiliated against Marquette. Now they had a week to recalibrate. I got the Pirates winning at Hinkle. You know, it that place has been had been like a house of horrors the first few years since realignment for the Pirates. But the Pirates have won four of their last six games played there. And you know what? Make it five of seven. I'm taking the Pirates. Winning a pretty tight game on the road. I wouldn't be shocked if it went to overtime either. Now in a Sunday doubleheader on FS1 starting at noon, 23rd ranked Providence visiting Villanova. It's going to be a big day for the city of Philadelphia because that game is at Wells Fargo at noon and then everyone knows 3 o'clock right next door at Lincoln Financial Field, the NFC Championship game between the 49ers and the Eagles. You know, if I want to give a football prediction, I might as well. Fly Eagles fly down to Super Bowl 57 in the desert. And in this in th- in this case, V's up for Nova. I'm taking Villanova upsetting Providence at Wells Fargo in their second Wells Fargo game center game at Wells Fargo center game of the year and their first such game in Big East play. And then at the Garden, two o'clock, also on FS1, St. John's hosting Georgetown in another classic Big East rivalry game. I mean, I guess it's a rivalry weekend overall. You got Georgetown, St. John's, Marquette, DePaul. And I think Villanova, by the way, I think they end up winning, pulling away. I think Nova by eight. That sounds right. And then St. John's taking on Georgetown. I think Georgetown will keep it competitive. St. John's, they just, they've looked terrible. They had a horrible offensive game and then a very bad defensive game. Back to back. I think they got to find that happy medium now and I think they will. I got the Red Storm winning, but I think it's only going to be single digits. I think it might be in that eight-point window as well. Over to the women's side on Saturday. Creighton-Georgetown at McDonough Arena. Georgetown's hot. Three straight wins. But Creighton, despite having a loss during the time in which Georgetown's been on their winning streak... This is just a different beast because Georgetown, they beat DePaul, Providence, and Seton Hall. This is different here against Creighton. I'm going to take the Blue Jays winning at McDonough, but Georgetown will make this a dogfight. And then at 2 o'clock, Providence and Xavier from the Centos Center. I mean, Xavier's 0-11 in the league, 10 losses in a row. I got the Friars winning on the road. Again, it shows. They've been much better on the road than they have at home. And their only home win, ironically, in conference play was against Xavier. And they will finish this season sweep there. Just a little, just about 100 miles or so farther west, Butler hosting Marquette. 
I think the Golden Eagles remain hot. Again, they've won their last two games by a combined 45 points. Butler, they challenged St. John, so they they can and definitely have a chance to make things competitive with Marquette, still without Liza Carlin. But I think Marquette will win on the road. And then a rematch of the Big East Championship game and a rematch in Hartford of UConn's first Big East loss in nearly a decade that they suffered last year to the hands of Villanova. And it's back at the site where it happened, the XL Center. Villanova now number 21 in the country, UConn at number 5, and they got that big statement went on the road against Tennessee. I don't think it's going to be one of those games like the Big East Final where UConn won by 30. Villanova's going to make it a fight. They're going to keep it competitive. I don't think they're going to get lightning to strike twice here, kind of like they did in the Big East Final. But I do have UConn winning, but Maddie Segrist, the rest of her team, and Coach Denise Dillon, they're going to have something to say about that. So, that is going to do it for this episode of the Igloo. Thank you again to the legendary Rich Votkin for being on the show and taking the time to give a uh, a hot shot with a not as great of a following as he would like. The, the opportunity to have him on the show. I, I'm truly, really grateful. Rich, I hope you're listening to this. Thank you again uh, for letting me have you on the show. I'm sure everyone listening wanted to hear this segment and you know hear the kind of wisdom that you've been showing all the loyal Hoya listeners now for half a century. So... That is going to do it. Hope you enjoyed the mid-season awards and, of course, all of this episode, including the Rich Fockin segment. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend. I'll catch you next time, most likely on Monday, for another edition of the coolest podcast in all of college basketball, The Igloo.